Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are good and that your steadfast love endures forever. We thank you, O Lord, that you are a sovereign God, that you did not leave us in our deadness, but that by your grace, by your mercy, because of your love, you have raised us to life. I pray that you would bring these truths to bear upon our hearts this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Your eyes open, your heart rate's 143 beats a minute, you're panicking, you don't know which way is up and down, and you say to yourself, I don't know what in the world is going on, but where can I go to be safe because the sky's gonna fall at any moment and kill me? Right, and there's Not only all those questions rattling around in your mind, but there's this siren that's going off like right next to your ear. And then after a few seconds, you come to realize, oh no, that's just my phone and that's my alarm. And I'm not about to die, I don't think, but I'm in somewhere, I'm in a place I'm unfamiliar with, I'm disoriented. I don't know where I am or what I'm doing, but, but, but this just doesn't seem normal. This is a common experience if you've just kind of awoken immediately from deep sleep or maybe you've been dreaming a, a dream and you, you, it's a really busy one and you wake up and you're just completely disoriented. Or maybe you're in a hotel room and, and you've worked all day long and you are very tired and you are sleeping very well and then all of a sudden the alarm clock goes off and you just, it takes a minute to become aware of your surroundings and think, you know, this is not my normal bed, this is not my normal place and kind of run back through your mind all of the places you've been and how you wound up where you are. This same kind of disorientation, I think, is very prevalent really outside of the church and in the culture, I mean, really mostly dealing with questions about identity and who we are and how we got here and what we're supposed to be doing but that question or that, that phenomenon of disorientation is not only common out there in the world, but I think it can quite commonly be prevalent in our own hearts. Even as disciples of Christ, we can kind of lose track and become disoriented and, and really begin to ask questions if maybe we haven't put the words to them, but, but really, who am I? How did I get here and what am I supposed to be doing? Those are questions that people often wrestle with. Somehow along the way, we lose our way. And at the end of the day, really the only way to kind of not come to that place or to be rescued from that place of disorientation is in a conversation with God. Really in a, in a conversation with God through his word and, and Ephesians chapter two verses one through 10, I think really gets at all three of those questions. And the first one of which is, is really this question of who we are. Paul opens chapter two with really three verses that are quite grim. Right, one of the first descriptors of how he describes his audience, the, the, the you in the crowd is the word dead, right? He, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you want to walk. He's basically making the point, though you, were, though you were living and breathing physically, inwardly and spiritually and mentally, 
The Bible defines your life before Christ as death. Right? While, while you may have once thought that the way that you were living and, and the life that you enjoyed really was you living, the Bible describes that way of life before Christ really as death. Those were the things that you formerly walked in, your trespasses and sins. Your life was lifeless. And how Paul describes it, our life before Christ, using the word death or dead, I think is some, somewhat kind of hard for us to grasp in a really concrete way, uh, uh, mainly because in our culture, in our day and time, we've kind of sanitized death so much. Um, we, we don't really handle dead bodies anymore like these people would have. We don't really, uh, we, don't, we don't do any of those things. But what he's really describing is a lifeless dismembered body that's somehow upright and walking, right? The closest we probably come into contact with death on a daily basis is those dead animals that that are laying along the side of the road as you're driving down the highway. And at 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 miles an hour, right, they're just just there, you barely even notice them and you drive on. But, But when you're going by a dead animal at 10 miles an hour on your bicycle, things are a bit different, right? Death actually smells and you can actually see what it looks like. You can see the organs that were supposed to be on the inside and now they're on the outside. And and that's what Paul describes death or really the life before Christ. That's how he describes it as as, as those dismembered organs being not where they're supposed to be, but but somehow a, a body still standing upright. Really the walking dead. That was what life was like in the past. He not only describes it as a death, but, but he also describes it as this sort of kind of blind following of various entities. First he says, you know, following the course of this world, meaning, meaning the, the culture and society where, where you went, you determined where you went and what you were. The prince of the power of the air, the devil himself determined what you did and by definition you were a son of disobedience. The whole of your life characterized by sin He goes on in verse three to really describe whatever your body wanted to do, whatever your mind was inclined to do, that is what you did. He describes life before Christ in two ways, as death, but also as just this sort of slavery, this sort of blind following, this sort of really evil game of Simon Says, where the Simon is the world and the flesh and the devil and always telling you to do something evil and terrible and harmful. And so he describes our, really kind of just our persons as dead. He describes our actions as kind of slavery to all these things, but he describes our nature as one of a child of wrath. In other words, the innermost part of your being, really the control center from which all of your actions and all of your thoughts and all of the things that you do and say from, from which all of those things flow was evil and only deserved the wrath of God. 
that's what you were like. Not just them, right? Not just those, your, 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 your rival political party, not just your unconverted family, but that's what you were like, right? The people sitting in this room, this is what you were like before Christ. You were dead. You were in slavery. Your nature, the very core of your being, deserved the wrath of God. But the important part is that Paul says, that's what you were. Right? The tense of all of those things is very important. Verse one, you were dead. Verse two, you once walked. Verse three, among whom we all once lived. We we were by nature children of wrath. You see, these descriptors of our past life are exactly that. They're descriptors of our past life. They're not descriptors of our present life. The past tense nature of verses one to three are very, very helpful for kind of orienting us for who we are. We need to be reminded from the scriptures that who we are today is not who we once were. That who we are today is not who we once were. Our lives are no longer defined by death and slavery and a a wrath-deserving nature. That's not who we are now. Those are things, really, that Paul puts in the category of past tense. Which not only means that they ought not to be part of our present selves, but that they don't have to be a part of our present selves. You see, who we were is not who we have to be today, meaning that, that because of who we were and the things that we did that went along with who we were, those things are in our past. Those things don't have to define. They don't have to live in our lives today. And those things are left behind. It's, it's always kind of difficult making that transition, you know, when, when the kids... Um, you know, for 180 days, forever how many weeks, you've been consecutively kind of having the same routine week by week, right? You wake up at a certain time, you do certain things, right? You fix the snacks or, or you make sure the kids are dressed and they brush their teeth and you put them in the vehicle and you go and five days a week, you do that same thing every single day, every single day for the entire school year. And then the week after they get out, you're like, what, what am I doing? Like, why am I up now? What, what is my root? I don't even know what to do with myself anymore. See, those things that, that kind of defined who you were and what you did in the past no longer define who you are and what you do in the present. And seasons change. The things that you did at one point, you don't have to do them anymore. And I think that's one of the applications of the past tense nature of who God describes us to be here in Ephesians 1 to 3. There's a a purpose behind Paul saying that this is who you once were, that you once were dead, that you once were slaves, that you once had evil natures that that deserved the wrath of God. He's making the point that this is not who you are in the present and therefore 
all of those sins and trespasses that went on, went along with all those things. They don't, they don't go along with your present lives now. So, so all of those sexual sins that used to define the past and all of those personal sins that used to define the past and all of those you know, theocentric sins, that all the evil thoughts about God that used to define the past, those things don't define our present or our future. Right, there's, there's the, the tense change makes it very clear that the person who I used to be is not the same as the person that I am now. And so we need to be reminded of that tense change, right? That, that, that who I once was is not who I am. But we also need to be reminded of, of how we got to where we are now. Right, as we noted just, just a minute ago, our, our deadness is now a part of the past. It's in the past tense. And, and, and the question then becomes, well, how is that so? Right, how does that come to be? How, how, do, how do I, you know, I used to be a dead person, the Bible says. How, how am I a person that's now been raised to life? How was that tense change even true in the first place? Well, I think verse five kind of picks up on the language of verse one. So Paul in the first three verses really goes off on a, on a tangent, really describing our deadness. But he doesn't finish his sentence until much later. And so in verse four, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, he said that exact same thing back in verse one. So you're picking up on that same thought. You remember how dead you once were, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What's he, what's he pointing out? He's, the first thing that we notice about how do we come to life, we notice that it's not because of anything in us, namely because we were dead. Right? Dead people can't raise dead people to life. Dead people can't raise themselves to life. In other words, if we are alive now, it's not because of anything that we've done. And I think the nature of those verbs in verses five and six tell us exactly that. All right, we have this thundering inbreaking of God's mercy in verse four. But God, in the midst of our deadness, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What, are the, what, what has God done? He notes three things that are all kind of tied and, and wrapped up together. He made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with him. And those are all very important verbs that have, you, know, you could preach a sermon probably on each one of them. But the thing that, that should draw our attention in particular is that all of those, verses, all of those verbs are in the third person singular. Right, they're not in the first person. I didn't raise myself up. I didn't resurrect myself. I didn't seat myself, right? You didn't seat me either, right? You didn't raise me to life. You didn't uh, resurrect me. You didn't seat me with Christ, but they're in the third person. In other words, they're referring to God himself. But in the midst of our deadness, 
It's God who is the one who is making us alive, who is raising us up and who is seating us in the heavenly places. It's God who is out of his, his rich mercy and his great love who is at work. Right? Dead people can't work. That's, that's the other point, right? That's the other thing that we notice when we ask this question, well, how did we get here? How did we, how did we come alive? Well, obviously, dead people can't work. Right? It's not, it can't be because of anything good in us. I mean, the, the whole passage from verses, five, from verses four to nine emphasize this very thing, but, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. When we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And Paul's very aware that, that dead people are incapable of doing anything. And much like a much like a, a four year old who's got a million things going on in their mind, right? And you you know you, you have to tell them to do things seven hundred times. Right? It's just almost incapable of doing anything. You have to parent them. You have to protect them. You have to watch over them. You have to remind them. The second thing that we notice from this passage that kind of orients us and, and kind of gives us a master reset remind us of who we are but also how we got here is, is that we, we notice that we, we we're being reminded that we are who we are not because of ourselves right? we're being reminded that we are who we are not because of ourselves right? our salvation was not our own doing it was God's Right, the fact that I am no longer dead but alive with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, it's not my own doing, but it's God the Trinity who has been at work. It's the very opposite of this term kind of, you know, of, of being self-made. A lot of times when we talk about our, our fathers or our grandfathers or our great-great-grandfathers, we talk about great men of the past who have been heroes, one of the descriptors that goes along with those stories is that they were men who were self-made. In other words, that, that they started with nothing and they worked hard and they made themselves into something great. What Paul is laying out for us here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is something wholly opposite from that. Right? We are not self-made. The reason why any one of us is sitting in this room this evening is not our own contribution. It's not our own works. It's God who has been at work in our hearts applying Christ to them. I think this is, this is really a, a theological truth that ought to hit at, at least two types of people directly in the center of the chest. Well, first, I think that this truth 
that God has made us who we are, that, that God's grace is what has saved us. This truth ought to hit those who are lowly and lonely, those who are weak and wounded and those who are beaten and battered square in the middle of the chest because of verse seven. Paul's waxed eloquent on how God has made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Paul says that that one of the reasons, one of the purposes of God's sovereign grace, of God's making dead people alive is so that he would be recognized and worshiped for showing his kindness and grace towards us in Christ Jesus. And so for those who are perhaps worn down maybe by pain, maybe by rejection, maybe by sickness, maybe just by the monotony of life, maybe by whatever. The fact that you even are a Christian is a testimony to God's kindness. And so however confusing present circumstances may be, the fact that you even are a Christian is a testimony of God's kindness and it carries over into our present circumstances and says no matter what our present circumstances may kind of lead us to believe the scriptures tell me that that God is kind my own being a Christian tells me that God is kind and so whatever comes to pass God is going to be kind so it all so 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 it applies directly to to sufferers but it also applies directly to that kind of haughty or prideful person. Paul makes the application directly in verses eight and nine. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And a heart knowledge of the sovereign grace of God at work in dead people's lives, bringing them to life, cannot coexist with pride. There's no room for pride in the heart whenever you realize that you are who you are because God has made you who you are. It's not me who's made me who I am. It's not you who's made me who I am. It's God who's made me who I am. So what reason do I have to boast? And there is none. The reason you are who you are is is not because of you. The third thing that kind of reorients us and, and grounds us in moments when we are disoriented is the fact that God reminds us not only of who we are and how we were made who we are, but also of what we are supposed to be doing. That's what 
Uh, Paul talks about directly in verse 10, right? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that, that when the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he, when he gets ready to, to talk about good works, it's not in verse 3, but it's in verse 10. It's not before God intervenes, but it's after God has called and regenerated and made new. It's after he has resurrected. It's after he has set his love upon us. It's after he has shown us great mercy. That's when we talk about good works. That's Paul's, Paul goes on to say that, that, that God has regenerated us, but he's now called us to good works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. In other words, God has created us. He's made us. He's formed us. He's shaped us for for something in particular, for good works. We we read out of Exodus 20 a minute ago, what is verse one all about? The fact that God has rescued his people out of slavery and out of bondage in Egypt, and then he tells them what to do. He demonstrates, he sets his sights up, he loves them, and then he leads them into obedience. The same is true for the Christian. God has recreated us. We are his workmanship. He, he, He recreates us, and then he sends us out for good works. Good works that that are not some afterthought, but but good works that are thought of in the mind of God beforehand in other words kind of using language of chapter 1 verse 4 before the foundations of the world in other words our our salvation right our effectual calling the, the fact that God wants us to be his is something that he thought about and that he chose to do before the foundations of the world but he didn't only choose to save us before the foundation of the world but he chose for us to walk in obedience and good works before the foundation of the world as well God created us for himself. He created us to walk in these things. Whereas we used to walk, verse, the language of verse one picked up back here in verse 10, whereas we used to walk in trespasses and sins, now we are called to walk in good works. And so we're being reminded here that you are who you are in order to serve a purpose. You are who you are in order to serve a purpose. It's so easy to become distracted by all the things that we're not supposed to be. And it's incredibly restful to realize what God has created for us to be. And he's not created us to be really simply just just really beautiful, wonderful knots on a log, right? He, his workmanship, right? There, there, there are some workmanships that are just beautiful pieces of furniture, right? That are just there to look at. That's not the sort of workmanship that God has created his people to be. Yes, we are wonderful to look at, but God 
longs for us to, to, to actually be useful. And instead of being just some bench that sits there that's beautiful and it's made of wood and it's stained beautifully and it's great and it's lovely, he, he, he creates us to be something that is actually usable, something that accomplishes something. As a kid, you can, you can remember maybe, or at least I can, I loved airplanes as a kid and I was always disappointed by those toy airplanes that wouldn't actually fly. Like airplanes are designed to fly. And so I would always break the ones that wouldn't fly because I was trying to make them fly. They were just meant to be looked at. They weren't really meant to be played with. And God, God's workmanship is, is similar. He's made us to do things, right? To be used. He's created us for good works that we should walk in them. That's what we were made for. And so as we conclude going back to our opening illustration it can be a very disorienting experience to wake from sleep in a foreign place and uh, after a after a deep sleep and at a at a weird time and wonder really who you are and where you are and how you got there and what you're supposed to be doing and perhaps that's the ephesian church Perhaps they're facing those same questions that many of us are facing today. Who are we? How, how, how did we get here? What, what are we supposed to be doing? And I think this passage works as really kind of a master reset to reorient us and reground us in these eternal theological truths that never pass away with any generation. Right, if you remember back, I don't know, 10 years ago, uh, maybe it's not that long, but when iPhones first began to become just the thing, when, when the compass in them got off, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but like with an iPhone 4, you had to wave it in this figure eight motion. And so there were people walking around, you know, like you know they have an iPhone when you see them just making this random figure eight motion in the middle of the air. Compass didn't know where it was. It didn't know where it was supposed to be pointing. I think we as Christians can become that way oftentimes. But the word of God calibrates us. The, The word of God reorients us to a true north. And so just remember these three things, right? That, 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 that who we are is not who we once were, that, that, that who we are is, is not because of ourselves and that we are who we are in order to serve God. So there's an immense amount of security and contentment found in just living in these very simple truths. Let's pray. Father in the heaven, uh, No doubt in the morning when we wake up, all of us will go to different places or perhaps stay in the same places and we'll pick up like routines and much of our lives will be the same as it was seven days ago. And yet even though many things are the same, we can begin to ask very complex questions. And so, Father, as we ask those complex questions, we pray that these things would come to mind and that whether we go to work or whether we stay home or whether we go wherever we go, we pray that we would find rest in letting you define who we are and how we got here 
and what we're supposed to be doing. Three very simple things. And so, Father, we pray that you would please be at work in our hearts, grounding us in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.